0: In the name of God, who creates, redeems, and sanctifies, amen. Please sit. This story that we hear in the gospel this morning sits amongst quite a few fairly difficult stories and parables and teaching of Jesus about money, about wealth, and specifically about our relationship to it. And the collect, the prayer that I said at the very beginning of the service, actually flagged that carefully this morning, To remind us that there's a difference between the treasure that we amass here and the treasure that we amass in heaven surely this is a common theme in the other readings as well especially in the epistle that we just heard and it's been a common theme for the last couple of weeks although we missed last week i have a bunch of colleagues who think that i cheated by doing saint matthew last week instead of the story in Luke, which was very, very difficult, more difficult than this one, I think. But don't worry, it'll come for us in three years, we'll hear it. It's the thing, it always comes back around. But this story, I think perhaps, is one of the most difficult ones because it's so vivid, because it's so driven by image and concrete detail, and because it has within it a number of challenges that particularly as Episcopalians, we're gonna struggle with, and we'll come to that. What we heard this morning is that there is a rich man, apparently a very rich man, who seems to have the best of everything. And yet, just like the last couple of stories, the thing about this man is that he seems, even though he has everything, to be missing everything. One of the pieces that isn't named in the story that's really important is that at this point in the ancient world, outside one of these big grand houses, there would have been a bench or some kind of seating for the poor people like Lazarus to sit on and to wait until after the feast was held, until after all the wealthy people inside had had their fill. And it was the custom at this point in the ancient world then for the servants to gather up what was left over and to bring it out to the people who were sitting at the gate. It was sort of an unwritten rule, an expectation of hospitality, an expectation of mercy, that if you were the one who was fortunate, after you'd had what you needed and you'd fed all your guests, then you would take out what was left and give it to the people who were less fortunate than you. Except what we think we hear in this story is that this man doesn't do that. If you read the text carefully, it continues, the the tense is, is a continuing tense, right? He longed, Lazarus longed, to feast on the crumbs that came from this man's table, meaning that that longing was never satisfied, meaning that the rich man, even though he feasted every single day, according to the text, never lived into this unwritten rule, to this... Tradition of honoring, of honoring hospitality and offering something to the people who waited outside. He never seemed to do that. I wonder why. And so the text goes on quickly, and Lazarus and the rich man die. And because all of us come to the gate of death, when we get there, Lazarus and the rich man are equal. There was a lot of talk about that in the last couple of weeks in the church, at least in my circles, nerdy priest circles, about the fact that the line used to be prince or pauper, but it certainly applies to some of the more high-profile deaths we've seen lately, like the queen. No matter who you are in this life, no matter what you amass, when we come to that gate, we are the same. Each one of us shows up at that gate with empty hands, with no power to yield, no privilege to use, no wealth to give, nothing to use to leverage ourselves. Each one of us shows up with nothing except the story that we told when we were here, the ways that we lived, the ways that we loved, the ways that we showed mercy or didn't, the ways that we lived out our faith or didn't. And what's really fascinating about this exchange in the gospel with Abraham is that the rich man, even though he's gone through this gate, he still doesn't get it. Listen to the entitlement in what he says. Keep in mind, he's had everything his whole life, and he's ignored this man who sat out out front just waiting for crumbs. And and he still sounds (laughs) entitled when we come to this moment. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony. And then again later he says, Send Lazarus to my father's house to warn my brothers. As if Lazarus' very being, his existence, even in eternity, is to be this man's servant, a lesser than being. Even here in eternity, the rich man thinks that his power and privilege are going to help him. Are going to get him something and so he expects that someone who's less than him will surely leave the goodness of his reward and come all the way down to serve him now when we come to stories like this there are there are lots of debates about who jesus is talking to and what he's after in a story like this And I think there's a hope in many of us that maybe he's just trying to make a point. Maybe this is a rhetorical story. Maybe he's exaggerating his language to be hard on the Pharisees, to push them to realize some important truth. And maybe that's true, and maybe it isn't. Certainly the image that we see in this gospel text of heaven and hell is very different than our sort of traditional Episcopal understanding of that. So if you looked around and felt a little uncomfortable while I was reading that gospel, I wouldn't be surprised. I think some of you were like, wait, that's not, that's not what I think this is supposed to be. And in some ways, you're right. Our tradition is a little bit different, and we interpret things a little bit differently. But as we always say, we have to contend with the text and the words that are there. And what Jesus actually says. We have to hear him out and wrestle with it and try to understand what it's saying to us this morning, the point that Jesus is trying to make to the disciples and the Pharisees, to everyone who's listening, and to us, because ultimately this was included in the gospel. So what he's definitely doing, as I read this, is condemning there's really no other word for it. What he is definitely doing is condemning the selfishness of the rich man, his hardness of heart, his absolute, utter failure to have mercy in his lifetime on the concrete, livable person who was right in front of him. And there is something, I think, too, to this idea that after he dies, he still can't get past himself. He still can't see all people as equal. He still thinks that this man should serve him. Now, some of you know, I think already, that one of my favorite books is The Great Divorce, published in 1945 by C.S. Lewis. It is an allegory about heaven and hell, and it's a fantastic way of thinking with a theological brain through the choices that we make in this life, perhaps the choices that we make in the next life, and how those things interact with our understandings, rudimentary though they are, of heaven and hell and what happens to us after this life. It is not the easiest read, I will admit that, but it is absolutely worth it. And so if you haven't read it, I encourage you to. And I am going to tell you a little bit now about it without trying to ruin it, because I I think it helps with this story a little bit. What Lewis manages to create in this book, in this allegory, is a sense of choice. The sense that each one of us has ultimately one choice that plays out in every other choice that we make. It's the choice of whether we want to be with God or not. And it plays out in little and big ways every time we do something or think something or make a different decision, even if it doesn't seem like it matters. At the end of the day, Lewis would argue, I think, that what we're doing is deciding whether or not we want to live in the belovedness of God or we want to, as the epistle said, sort of depend on ourselves and amass our own life and security. whether we want to love God or if we're sort of too stubborn, too hard of heart, too angry, too grumpy, too much of an individual to get out of our own way. And those folks in the book who can't forgive, who can't get out of their own way, who can't give of themselves, who can't open their homes and give more than just the leftovers, who can't give of their blessings to support the church and the communion of saints, who can't show mercy both to themselves and to others, there literally is a bus in this book that people get on when they make that choice and they go further and further and further away from God. With every single choice they make to choose their own kind of stubborn will, their decision to be themselves, to ignore other people, and to move they move further and further away from god and make it harder and harder to ever come back to that point of transformation where they give their hearts over for me when i read this story because this book had such a profound influence on me i can't think of anything else but the fact that this man even in his eternity has made so many choices to harden his heart and we talked a little bit about that last week, he's made so many choices to look away from God, to ignore the needs of the people around him, that he just can't see it. He's so hard and so frustrated and so stubborn and so tired and so grumpy and so human that he just can't see it. Which is why his whole perspective and mindset can't shift even after the mystery of God is revealed, even after he's seen it. He still can't get over himself because whatever he did here in this life, however he lived, as one who couldn't forgive, as one who couldn't offer grace, as one who held everything tightly and got angry all the time, it hardened his heart and his being so much that not only could he see the person in need in front of him, he also couldn't see himself and certainly couldn't see God. So why then does Jesus tell us this story? And what is it that we're supposed to get out of it? Surely most of us are sitting here saying, I don't have that kind of money. I don't feast sumptuously every day. I don't ignore the homeless poor person who's sitting at my gate. This concrete example, it's a little scary, but it's not my life, right? I think actually it begs a couple of very important questions for us all. First and foremost, I think it's about the people that we don't see. The people that God would like us to show mercy to that we can't see. And maybe they're not always, right, sitting outside our door waiting for us. But they're not far. Sometimes it's the people that we love who are in pain and we can't see it. Sometimes it is the people who are less fortunate than we are who need our support. Who is it that God is calling you to show mercy to? And who are the people that you often don't see? Whether that's someone in need or it's someone in need of your forgiveness or someone in need of your mercy. Sometimes, honestly, I think it's as simple as looking nicely at the person at CVS and saying hello after they've cut you off in line. Sometimes it's really just that simple about being that kind sometimes it's not. I think the next question is about unwritten rules, and God, we have a lot of them in our society, or at least we used to. The ways in which we used to be kind to each other and honor each other and show each other that we were all people, all in it together. I've said, I think, in the last week or two that everything is so divisive and so corrosive and so hard right now, Certainly, God calls us to go out and to be those people who calm that down, who offer peace and gentleness and kindness and love in the face of that anger and frustration. And then I think more broadly, it asks us some questions about our own lives and what we have been given. And this series of texts, I think, is really asking us to be intentional about where we keep our hearts what our real treasure is, and whether or not we really feel like our security is something we've built up for each other here, or whether or not we find our security in God. Are we living lives that add to the hardness of our hearts? Or are we living lives that, as we talked about last week, sort of begin to transform those hearts into soft, squishy, sensitive, breakable, lovely, and kind hearts of flesh. This week, I'd ask you to think about what Jesus is calling your attention to in this story, and it may not be the same for you as it is for the person who's sitting next to you, but there is a lot here for each one of us. To think about forgiveness and grace and kindness and the ways in which we offer mercy to ourselves and to each other. That love and mercy is ultimately what softens those crispy edges of our hearts. And maybe most importantly, what is it that you are not seeing? In the people around you and in yourself. Jesus' story this morning, I think, absolutely suggests to us that there is a point where it becomes too late to undo the damage we've done to ourselves with this hardness and lack of sight. So what is it that you are not seeing? Amen.